Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the album wrap episode of season nine of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown, joined as always on these episodes by my pal and co-host, even though he's a Liverpool supporter, John Paulson. Um, this is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. Today, we're looking at the Heartbreakers' 1991 album, Into the Great Wide Open. How are you doing, Paul? John, Jesus, we, I got, I got you. Yeah, I started with your last name there. Well, John Paul, hey, Paul. It, it only happens fifteen times a year. Uh, I have one of those names where they people call me Paul Johnson fairly regularly. Anybody like new that I meet or a contractor that's coming to the house or something, uh, Paul Johnson is is common. Awesome. Uh, it's it's nice to be here. It's always a highlight uh, to do these album wrap episodes with you and uh, you alluded to the Liverpool support. Uh, you're a Man United fan, so they're you know, rivals, but it's, it's been good talking with you about, uh, football, uh, in addition to petty over, you know, our Twitter DMS and, uh, yeah. bonding kind of bonding that way, I guess, reverse bonding, giving each other ribbing, ribbing each other, giving each other. Oh, shit. Of course. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, and, and this is a, a special album to me too. Um, this was the first tour, uh, that I went to was after, uh, this album came out. And if you think about, uh, Tom's, discography at this point in his career the the number of great songs that he could mine uh for a set list uh seeing him for the first time there's a giant tree on stage yeah uh, which they used to great effect for the don't come around here no more segment uh i was doing a little bit of research and there's a, a take the highway i believe it's called uh concert film which is it's out of print it was released on laser disc uh <laughs> And VHS, uh, so you can still find the VHS, I think, and the LaserDisc. You know, if you have a LaserDisc uh, player, I don't know anybody who has one personally, but <laughs> um, it is also available on YouTube, and it's kind of grainy, and uh, the sound seems pretty good. But uh, I definitely recommend people, you know, search that up and uh, watch that uh, concert because it was definitely a great introduction to him and the band live, and uh, just the the span of the his discography at that time just led to a really epic, epic uh, concert. And I was just completely hooked at that point as a fan. Well, because you say, like, you know, with the next album that gets released is Greatest Hits. So you've got a Greatest Hits tour already there. And not to mention like the back half of his career, which, you know, depending on how you look at it, could be even better, you know? So which, um, whereabouts did you see that show? That was at, uh, it was at Marcus Amphitheater at the time. Uh, I thought it was during Summerfest, but I was looking at the date. It was actually in September, uh, the Summerfest ground. So Milwaukee, Wisconsin has this, uh, it used to be a 10-day fest um, called Summerfest. And um, they had a, they have a big amphitheater down there by the lakefront. Uh, okay. And he, that's actually the last concert I saw him as well in 2017 was at Summerfest. So it was at the same uh, place where I saw him the first time, uh, just a different time of the year. Uh, September was a, a good time to see him. It wasn't too hot or anything like that. And I just remember the crowd. I was sitting in the sort of the second section of the of the of the amphitheater in the center, and uh, I just remember the crowd just loved him. I mean, it's just the, at that point, especially like he after Full Moon Fever and now into the Great White Open with learning to fly in the radio, uh, everybody was was excited to see him there. So that's one of those, you know, when you've had Full Moon Fever. Now you've got a lot of greatest hits fans coming as well now, right? So now you've got not just the Pettyheads, not just the guys who've been with Tom Petty for a long time, but all these people who the radio hit 
fans. And so that that's when an artist's set list can tend to change, right? Where you don't get quite as many deep cuts. So I was looking <laughs> on setlist.fm and they don't have the set list for the September 7th show with the Marcus Amadeus. I saw, I was looking for that as well. I, I ended up looking at their, um, you know, their average set list to, yeah. to kind of come up with some, and then looking at some of the, the set lists around that date to sort of yeah. try to put piece together what he might've played at that, at that show. But I, I recognize a lot of those songs. I remember for a lot of those songs from, from my experience there. Yeah. And what a set list too, right? I mean, it's, and it's no. a long one too. And like you said, that stage production, probably the biggest sort of stage production they ever did was on that tour, right? With the tree and all the sort of the props and the presidents coming running around, that kind of stuff. Um, so it's a very, very cool tour. And man, like they did quite a few songs from the album. Just looking. Yeah. Big, seven songs from the album around that time. Seven, six so, or seven, yeah, depending on yeah. the show. Um, and we'll get into it, but uh, most of them really worked well. And one of them that's sort of absent, which is surprising based on what he said, talked about, we can talk about a little bit later, but it, yeah. you know, there's some, some exclusions that were kind of surprising based on what Tom thought of certain songs in the album. And it was recorded between 1991. And again, they kind of, so they, they've got Rumbo studio in Canoga park, California. And then again, Mike Campbell's studio is his garage studio. And I think there's one song that again, we'll get to it later um, that I'm pretty sure I would be willing to guess that was recorded at Mike's garage because there's a specific feel to it that I think, yeah, that sounds like a late night. Let's just, we're mixing, let's go down to the garage and let's record some stuff here. So, but it's, it's crazy that they're able to, and I understand from studio to studio, you know, maybe the, a, a studio has a specific sound, but to be able to record in your garage and then also record at uh, another studio, Sound City or something, and have them sound the same, yeah, or fit together is 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 kind of amazing to me. But I'm not deep in the weeds on the recording process. But well, what'll what'll happen quite often too is it'll be you know on Full Moon Fever. I can't remember which track it is, but they got someone to play drums. Was it Kelton who plays drums on one of the tracks? I can't remember. So, you know, that's just proximity. Well, he's not going to come over to here. He's in LA. Let's do, he's at that studio. Let's just go and use him there. Everything's mic'd up anyway. Or they're looking for a specific, you know, they want the guitar, you know, with these guys at Jeff Lynn's level. Well, I want the sound to, the guitar to sound very specifically this way. So let's go do it in this room because I know that I can get that sound there. So quite often that's what it is. Or they'll just mix things in different studios. So sometimes when you see the studio, it might have been recorded in one studio, but just mix in a different one. And if it's not differentiated, it could just be that too. Which is pretty cool. But five singles from this album. Only two released in the US. Learning to Fly into the Great Wide Open. Um, but Too Good to Be True was released in UK and Germany. King's Highway in UK. And All or Nothing in Germany. Incredible that All or Nothing wasn't released as a single. Yeah, and well, that's the one. That was the track I was alluding to. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I I pulled a few quotes from the documentary and from the the book that I wanted to mention, just about the recording process and like sort of the mood of the band uh, as they were making it, because Tom very much wanted. He had a lot of success with uh, Full Moon Fever. I think that's putting it lightly, and he wanted to marry uh, Jeff Lynne's production uh, or Jeff Lynne producer with. Uh, the Heartbreakers, and uh, you know there was a there's I believe it was, I believe it was a documentary. I remember Tom and Mike sitting at a uh, you know in a studio, and he said, I "quote We we all played on it. We were never all there at the same time." And then yeah. the interviewer asked, "Why not?" He said, "Well, we were being a little moody at the time." And then yeah. uh, later on in the documentary, a quote: uh, "It was a successful experiment, but a tough one because Jeff Jeff Lynn doesn't really like to produce groups." And this is interesting 
you can read between the lines as to what's happening. Uh, he also from the book says, quote, it's not a bad album, which is a weird thing to say, mm-hmm. kind of. Right? It's not a bad album. I think later on in the, in the quote, he's more positive about it. But he says, I don't think it was the best way to work with the Heartbreakers. He goes, it was my feeling that they might have been a little intimidated or feeling, and this quote this quote really struck me, or feeling that I'm dragging them onto my boat instead of coming onto theirs, end quote. And then and then they have Ben Mont in the documentary saying, quote, it wasn't any fun. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was, just the way they were recording, because they were pulling him in just to play little parts. And they were allowing him, I think, to be creative in that in those little things, but he wasn't playing with the band. And no. I think that's how they pretty much recorded their whole career to that point and then stan was saying quote it wasn't a high point creatively for me um end quote and he you know he basically said earlier in that quote that he wasn't allowed to hang and it wasn't like any camaraderie he didn't feel amongst the band and those were some of those little fractures i think that uh we're seeing there with how the band operated how they recorded and then ultimately with stan leaving the band yeah um you know what was sort of going on behind the scenes with it well, I'm pretty sure that this one too, the the record executive, I can't remember, you know, the, whoever was in charge um, that had released Full Moon Fever said, this one's going to be bigger. You know, and he said, this is going to, and he gave Tom, oh, this is going to sell 6 million units or an army or whatever. And Tony Dimitriotis quoted saying, like, why would you tell the artist that? Just say we're fully behind it because you're just building expectations. And then if the record doesn't do that, it can be easy for the artist to think, well, that's, that's flop then. Like if we were supposed to, if this record was supposed to sell this many units and it didn't, then that's, you know, quote unquote, a failure. But I mean, it's funny when you, you know, when artists talk about that and you can tell, you know, like your Kiss band, Kiss and some of these bands where that's all they judge their their creative output on is is sales. But sales aren't always indicative of quality. You know, and I think this album, you know, we'll get into, as we get into this, the quality of this album is astounding. I mean, it's, it's like you said, I mean, the, you know, he drags the Heartbreakers into the studio to work with Jeff Lynne. And of course, that is going to be a problem, right? Because Jeff and Tom have been hanging around for a long time now, doing Full Moon Fever, Traveling Wilburys, they're buddies. They've kind of, he's got away from the Heartbreakers. And so dragging them into that situation where they've got this guy who is super tight with and works really well with, I can you can see why that's going to be a problem. So there's all those factors, like you said, are, they all come into play at the same time. And so... Again, it's a bit like Echo. You can see why when band members or when Tom looks back at it, you're going to think about that more than maybe you're going to think about, well, what were the songs like? Yeah, and coming off of Full Moon Fever, I think the band itself was sort of a little bit jilted mm-hmm. uh, by maybe not so much by the... Well, I think part of partly because that was his first solo album and... You know, some of them were invited into those sessions and some weren't. Yeah. And it was a giant monster hit. And so I'm sure that's just creeping into their minds a bit. Like, is he leaving? He always said that he wasn't leaving. He'd always be back, but he wanted to go do this stuff on the side. And, you know, obviously meeting Jeff Lynn led to the Wilburys and uh, all this other work that he was doing and then Full Moon Fever. Um, so I, I think it's at one point, it's a, you know, uh, an olive branch. Because he's yeah. like, I want, I, I, you know, Full Moon Fever is just a, such a success. I want to continue with Jeff Lynn as a co-writer and a, as a producer. Um, and on the other hand, I we, we're due to do a, a Heartbreakers album, but this is kind of the way we have to do it. And so he was, I don't know, I wouldn't say strong arming, but this is the process with Jeff. So yeah. this is you got to kind of get in line if you want to make it a Heartbreakers album. Um, but I think it was such a grind that, and I don't know if it was. 
it was such a grind with the heartbreakers that he didn't use jeff again on the next album um and went a different direction we could talk about that as well but or maybe just sort of that relationship had sort of run its course in terms of this time span you know well, I think, you know, obviously we're not going to start talking about Wildflowers too much, but if you think about that collection of songs and where those came from, Jefflin's not the right guy for that set of songs, right? And I mean, I love Jefflin, I love his production, I don't have the same problems that a lot of people do with the way his records sound, but if Jefflin produces Wildflowers, I don't think that album is nearly the same, right? And I think it is interesting, like you said, because if you're, if you're used to recording in the room as a band and working things out as the heartbreakers, like you said, as they were. And Ben Montev, you know, if you, you listen to those um, interviews for the Mojo sessions, he says, I like being no headphones. I want to look at the guy's eyes and play off what he's doing. If you're just coming in and saying, well, here's, here's the bed track. This is roughly what you want to do. It's, it's totally different. Then you're really more or less just a session player, right? Which Ben Mont was. Ben Mont did tons of session work, but not for the heartbreakers. So, like I said, again, that friction, you can totally understand where it comes from. But again, I think that, I, or you would hope that when they look at the songs they got out of those sessions, we just look at the songs and they're all about, all of them are all about songs. I don't know how you can really sort of complain that it didn't work. But it's also the last time they did that too, right? If you think about it, they never did, they never used this approach again as a band. And when Tom went off and did Highway, to, Highway Companion, they even, like, I think that was even more separation because literally that was just the three of them. That was just Jeff, Tom, and Mike. There's no additional musicians on that record. And I think that's that deliberate thing. Well, I'm going to keep this completely separate because <laughs> that hybrid thing and just bringing Ben Mont in for one song didn't work and I don't want to piss him off anymore. So it's just that learning experience and, and trying a different way of doing it, which, like I said, I think it worked. Yeah, I see. Uh, I think Mike worked fine with Jeff. So it was just yeah. some, of the, some of the band members that, I mean, but he was the one that was included in Full Moon Fever. And, and you know wrote some of those songs so yeah. as a different different dynamic the other uh i just wanted you to go over those singles again you said that how many were released in the united states so there's just two in the states uh learning to fly into the great wide open learning to fly hit 28 on the billboard and into the great wide open only hit 92 out in the cold charted on the mainstream rock chart but that's just from radio play off the album it was oh. never released as a single yeah okay so i that's why i was seeing this i saw uh Learning to fly at one on the rock chart, into the great wide open four, out in the cold one, yeah, uh, King's Highway four, and making some noise thirty. But you're just saying those are those are just airplay, not single uh, proper singer releases. Absolutely. Remember when radio stations used to play album tracks in the yeah. good old days when they would just think, well, that's a good song, let's play that, you know. And that's when the the, the DJs actually had uh, ownership over what they were playing, which is something that comes up later in uh, Tom's <laughs> career. But I want to mention uh, Full Moon Fever, five times platinum are by the RIAA into the great wide open twice platinum. So there's a couple of points here. One is that you could look at this as a follow-up to full moon fever and be disappointed in the sales. However, it's the heartbreakers biggest selling album since Dan, the torpedoes. Yeah. So definitely uh, two different ways to look at it in, in terms of Tom's career and where this one stands. And I think it is an extension to me, of full moon fever but we're also going to get you have some controversial statements about uh where this album fits within his chapters you know the or where full moon fever fits within his chapters of his career but we can talk about that a little bit later um but to me this is definitely the spiritual partner to full moon fever and i think it is an extension of that sound and really the songwriting style and the process with jeff lynn at, at producer and i always sort of considered that this is where i i was a little bit 
I'm surprised maybe is the right word about by this album, by the the quality of the songs, because Into the Great Wide Open to me was always sort of in my mind the lesser sibling of Full Moon Fever. Right. It was that thing of okay, well, we've done Full Moon Fever, it's a huge hit. And I just I did, for some reason I had it into my brain that well, maybe they're just sort of chasing that and let's do that again because that was successful, which I absolutely you know, I, I'm firmly to believe now that that isn't the case. It was just the, the natural progression. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, is this a 10 out of 10 album? I mean, you know, we talk about 10 out of 10 albums. I think Damn the Torpedoes is. I think Wildflowers is. I think Full Moon Fever probably is, even though I don't think all the songs are, you know, there's a couple of songs on there that I probably, we both sort of sequenced off. What do you think about Into the Great Wide Open? Do you think it's a 10 out of 10? I, w- I would probably give, if I had to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, no half stars, I probably would give it a 9. Right. Um, I, I looked at all music. I, I kind of wanted to see where this placed within fans' uh, judgment in terms of how this rated. Yeah. And I went to, so I, I was like, well, how could I do that? And I was going to do a poll on Twitter. And I was just like, well, I'm just going to get some troll. I mean, who knows what's going <laughs> to happen there? The bots are going to come. Uh, yeah. But uh, so I went to allmusic.com, which is a pretty, good site and I, I remember that they have their review the review um star rating and then they have the, the user average star mm-hmm. rating and it's one of he doesn't he doesn't according to the according to the users of all music he doesn't have a, a, a full five-star album but he has six albums that are uh rated 4.5 stars so four and a half stars okay uh, and this is this is one of them uh the other five are the self-titled debut uh damn the torpedoes hard promises Full Moon Fever and Wildflowers. So, the users, and I would assume these are fans that are coming to the site to rate the album, um, put it up there with his, you know, top six albums. And I would say you know, those, that's a pretty good list. Uh, maybe I would dispute the self-titled debut as being that strong start yeah, to finish. Uh, but you know, Dan the Torpedoes, Hard Promises, which I know you love, uh, Full Moon Fever, I love. Obviously, Wildflowers is up there. So, like for them to rate this album to that level i think speaks not so much to its i mean the commercial success is there mm-hmm. we do have a monster hit with learning to fly another pretty big hit that got a lot of mtv airplay with the video for into the great wide open and a few other i would say minor hits it's not as stacked as full moon fever but listening to this again and this is one i loved putting on and i would i would never skip a song and i think it's still there isn't a skip there isn't a skip on this album nope. and if it's there isn't a skip on this album on an album i would probably say it's a minimum of a nine and then it becomes a question of how high are the highs like yeah. how many hits are there how many amazing songs are there uh that maybe were giant hits or reasons that someone would go out and buy the album well and that's where i think that is the the main sort of difference in, in the thing that you're going to talk about whether full moon fever or this one's you know quote unquote better um is that Moon Fever is just blessed with those three gigantic songs, right? That Tom played pretty much every show after that and were huge hits where Learning to Fly is on that level for sure in terms of, you know, it was always played, fans love it. It's got different arrangements that he did with it. Into the Great Wide Open, I don't think does quite have that same punch, right? It doesn't have that same impact. And then after that, you know, All or Nothing is a fan favorite, but it was never released a single, so it didn't get that wide. And it is a bit more of a... It's not really a pop song. It's it's got more of a specificity, but it's, there's a, there's a thing that it is right, and it sits in its own little spot, even within Tom's catalog. But then you know some of the deep cuts on this album. I got to tell you, man, like I've had two or three songs on this album that I that I, they're just stuck in my brain. 
that I listen to all the time. And they're not the songs that I thought would be the case when I went into it. Yeah. Be, uh, let's get into the song by song. Cause it was very yeah. interesting hearing your, um, as I, I feel like the overall arching sense of listening to your song by song episodes is that you were surprised by this album in yeah. general and uh, were really pleased with it. Yeah. I didn't, yeah, I wasn't ready. And cause again, I mean, learning to fly, you open up with learning to fly. I mean, good God. I mean, again, can you write a more perfect pop song than this? It's three chords. It's the same sort of, you know, the same idea behind it as full, or, um, Free Falling, where you three chords, keep it simple, let the vocal and the lyrics carry it, and just write something that's got a huge hook. And he just nails it again. Yeah, this is this is one where you could look at it. And I, I you know, I heard this in 1991, so I was 17, 18, and um, kind of past the really coming of age age, but still re reminiscent of it. So I kind of looked at it from the, uh, the lyrics from a you know kid's standpoint or from a young adult standpoint but you know listening to it now it's very much you know he wrote this i think when he was 41 or thereabouts and you know as you get into middle age and you become a parent you could definitely read the lyrics as a um you know maybe as a parent talking to his child his or her child or you know trying to parlay some of this wisdom to, yeah. to, to, to the kids as to you know what's it like to grow up and you go out and it's just like this whole, this whole album has a real good uh, overarching theme into the great wide open that you are sort of growing up and you're, you're perhaps sending your children out into the world or you yourself are going out into the world and you don't know where this is all going to end up. And this is a great start to that, that whole story. When, as you said earlier, I've, I've got an opinion that may be controversial. I do think this is a stronger album overall than full moon fever. And you've hit on the nail, the nail on the head there about why I think that is because there is a cohesiveness to this album thematically it, there are through lines throughout this whole album and there are there are pairs of songs or, or triplets of songs that you can sort of point to and say there's a thread there there's a definite thing that he's saying and reinforcing there and there's also this insane universality to it like you said learning to fly can mean anything like you can apply it to he wrote it so broadly that you can apply it to anything. even as a 41 year old rock star learning to fly ain't got wings like it, that's that uncertainty about the heartbreakers come back into it with jeff lynn and i Maybe this will break up the band. Maybe this maybe this is the end point. If this doesn't work, maybe I fold and I go solo. You know, there's all many there's so many different ways that you can uh, you can interpret the lyrics that I think it's it's just a masterpiece, you know. And you mentioned that they, you know, always played it at concerts, and I would agree with that in general, but they didn't always play it at the others. This yeah. is one this is a, a testament to uh Tom's uh, discography, you know, as he got older, like he just literally could not play all of his hits. Yeah. And this is one that might get skipped here and there. It wouldn't be at every show. I mean, I think I don't remember how many times I saw him. I think it was 15 to 20. And I would say most of the time he played it. And especially later on in his career, he started playing it acoustically uh, almost like a ballad. And I was listening yeah. to it again, trying to put my finger on it it's really the same tempo but it's a lot quieter and it's just him with the guitar and there might be a little bit of uh, a piano from with from benmont and just but nothing like the studio version which is more you know fuller uh with the yeah. full band and everything so it, it's interesting that maybe he got maybe he played it that way and really liked the way that it came off and decided that was going to be the sort of the way that they were going to play it going forward and it sort of just changed the song for him or he 
I don't know if he perhaps got sick of playing it the other way. And sometimes artists do that where they change the the format of the song, uh, the arrangement in order to bring new life to it and make it fun for them to play again. But that yeah. was always an interesting decision to me because it did come off great as a late, um, either as part of a little acoustic set in the middle of the set or as late uh a song either in the encore or late in the main set where he was trying to bring the crowd down and and uh, get a little emotion in there so did you must have seen it both ways then right you must have seen sort of the on the on the take the highway tour the integrated open tour they would have been full arrangement and then later on with that i mean that performance at gainesville you know on this on the running down a dream dock it is just euphoric I, one of my top 10 all-time favorite live performances of any song i think just incredible yeah. Yeah, I definitely saw it both ways. Uh, the the initial time seeing it, because it was certainly I would describe it as an up tempo. I wouldn't know if a, I guess a rocker, but not a rocker rocker, not a banger. Yeah, uh, a typical Mike Campbell banger, you know. And he's you could see his fingerprints on things. Uh, yeah. But uh, an up tempo, like ener energetic performance versus the very quiet, subdued performance, and it definitely was a shift. I, I like it both ways, and it's nice to hear it both ways because I think over the last I maybe mean, five or ten years, I've really only heard the ballad. And so going back and listening to the studio version quite a few times for this podcast, uh, for, you kind of forget how great of a up-tempo song it is. Okay, but, well, we'll move on then. We were talking about tempo and up-tempo. Second song is King's Highway. And I got to tell you, I think I might have rated this low and I gave it an eight. But I think I'm, that might be a point low. <laughs> you, you gave it an eight and then via uh, DM you said it should be higher, which is yeah. funny because you did this just a few weeks ago. Uh, I, I listened to this. I think I said to you in, via DM that this is a banger and like I forgot how good this one is. This is uh, the, the track that they opened that tour with, um, which says something, right? Yeah. This says, 100%. okay, this is this is a good song from this new album that we can open the tour with. And I think Tom was always one that took advantage of that slot in the live set because the, the the crowd is so excited to see you that they'll respond to just about anything. And so yeah. that's not a bad, bad spot to put a song that you want to play. That's up tempo, uh, but maybe is not a huge hit. Like he would rarely open his uh, concerts with a giant hit. Yeah. Uh, it was usually something like this. Um, so, but it, but it worked. He gets a great reaction from the crowd because they're all excited to see him. And then now he's played Kings highway. He doesn't have to worry about it, about it later. Um, I wanted to mention that Learning to Fly was the fifth most streamed album or song of all time of his. Um, King's Highway was the third most streamed on this album, peaked at four, as we mentioned earlier. You know, I love the uh, ascending single notes towards the end with a great finish. Um, I thought it was a little bit strange that it wasn't on the uh, anthology uh, through the years double disc that they released from MCA. Uh, you know, I thought it could have been just given some of the selections that they made for that. Um and that there's a live acoustic version on playback people should check out if they have it. It's very different, but it's uh, but it's beautiful. Uh, he he had a tendency to, to to do that with a you know going with a live acoustic version to change the format of the song. There's a lot. If you listen to a lot of the songs off this album, it's actually quite. There's there's I think three or four songs I've noted that they never played them the same way. You know where they would always slow them down or they'd always play them differently. And of course, like we said, we were talking about the production style and you know, the way that Jeff Lynne arranges, quite often you can't play them live the way that they're recorded because you don't have that many guitar players. You know, so there's different things you got to do and you got to adapt it. But I think it shows the the strength of the song when you can change the arrangements and it still works. But you talk about this as an opening number, you know, I, I, th I think you should always start a concert with a major key. 
Like, that's just a, I don't think you should start on a down. I don't think you should start on a minor. I don't think you should be pensive or edgy or anything like that. Start out, get us all happy, get us all moving. And this song, you know, Van Halen opened with Jump when I saw them live. Like, how cocky is that, right? Bring out, and that is a big, big hit. <laughs> but it's perfect, right? Because it just sets the tone yeah. of King's, King's Highway. I mean, you're up straight away, right? Everyone loves that song. Yeah, it's, it's it's a good one, and it's a good number two uh, following up Learning to Fly as well. Like, this, these two go well together, and then you get into, uh, you know, stop me if you want to keep talking about in King's Highway, but you get into into the Great Wide Open. Um, now, this got a lot of, I would say, a lot of airplay. It was a popular song. You know, you obviously saw it on MTV a ton. So I, this is on the verge, for me, of being a bit overplayed right. at the time. Uh, and it would not be, especially as we got into the nineties and, uh, you know, the dogs with wings tour and, you know, the, the subsequent tours that I saw after that, when he went into this, not, I, I was a bit disappointed because I would prefer the spot being used by on a different song or a different mid tempo yeah. song, because I kind of, it just was like, okay, I've heard him play this a few times. I'd rather hear something else. Right. Or straight into darkness or something like that right yeah uh second most streamed on the album the 13th most streamed song of all time uh so obviously easy it was a big one for him and i think part of it was driven by that by that video um and going back and listening to it now because it's not one i put on uh i mean it's on my playlist but it's not one i put on and say oh i want to hear this track (laughs) Listening to it, it, it within the context of the album, it really works. It, and I think as a, an older listener now, uh, it's even better because of just sort of the story aspect to it, and you know, sort of. And, and then you, then you, then I get a little bit nostalgic because I think about the video. I'm like, okay, this, yeah, this they did a good job with this one. Well, like you said, though, there are little connection points, right? So even if you think about King's Highway, you know, under a big old sky, out in a field of green. Um, you know, there's, there's that, and then even the King's Highway, we'll ride down the King's Highway into the Great Wide Open thematically. That just dovetails nicely. And like we talked about sequencing, this album sequenced really, really, really well. Perfectly. The lead, the lead into, into Great Wide. And, and I totally agree with you. And I, I'd given this one a nine. And I think this is where I'd, when I'm kind of going through afterwards, and because I just, I look at the song for the song's sake and the lyrics in this are so good. The story it tells is so good. It's one of Tom's best two or three narrative songs. But musically, it's fairly, it doesn't move around too much. There's not a ton of change in it. So I'd probably actually drop this onto an eight, maybe, or an eight and a half if I was doing halves. But I mean, it's, yeah, like you said, you've just heard it a million times. So it's one of those, it's like Bohemian Rhapsody. You forget how good it is because you don't really listen, listen to it. Um, But it's a good song. But Uh, this is, I just want to mention, this is the first time that they re-edited the music to fit the video. So they had seven, it's really, it's under a four minute song, right? It seems like when I think about it, I think if it's a long song, but I'm thinking of the video. Yeah. Uh, The video is seven minutes. So they like added music uh, to suit the video, which is so crazy for him, but it's the first time they did it. Um, And it's also a rare example. We talk about these mid-tempo bangers. this pile of songs that are kind of ballads, but not really. And a lot of them weren't released or played on the radio or whatever, but this is a, this is one that was actually a hit. And uh, it's a, that's, I wouldn't say it's a rarity at this point because you did have um, a couple other tracks that don't come around. Yeah. Roughly the same sort of space too. Right. But yeah, I think as we were talking about the older albums, you know, you know, straight into darkness got released as a, a single, um, didn't really make you know make it anywhere 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some other you know, insider. Uh, so I think, I think, I think as he got into this era, they were, they were starting to release some of these songs. A Face in the Crowd was really, you know, was a minor hit for him as well. Uh, but this is another one that not a rocker, um, a bit of a rocker at times, but not really a rocker that you would, you know, a traditional rocker that you would apply to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. More great Mike Campbell guitar work on this song too. And and two misheard lyrics for me on this one. Okay. Before I'd actually looked at the lyrics. So when he says the paper said Ed always played from the heart. When I'm singing along in the car, I'd always sung the paper said he'd always played by played from the heart. So I didn't think it was Ed. So and it's that Ed. again that Tom does that phrasing sometimes where he bends those vowels and you're not quite sure exactly what he's saying. But the other one, which I is just I find hilarious now, their AR man said, I don't hear a single. Well, I didn't know, I'd never heard the term A&R man when I heard this song. I thought he was saying There and Armand, which I assumed There was a French name and Armand definitely is. Although, okay, well, that's weird. Why are they commenting? Who are these people, you know? So, uh, There and Armand, that makes way more yeah, sense. Yeah, and that that's <laughs> actually probably uh, inspired by the fact that uh, Full Moon well, Fever, yep. when he played it for the uh, for the label, they said they didn't hear a single. So I think that made it into this maybe as a little jab. I don't know. Uh, the There's an American Treasure live version, which I think I like it better live at this point because I've heard yeah. the studio version so many times. It's uh, it's it's really good. It's also on the first greatest hits disc, disc which makes sense, and the an- anthology. So now I was going to talk to you about that, and we'll get into this when we talk about the greatest hits, but this did make the greatest hits album, despite not charting as highly on the Billboard chart as Jamming Me. And jamming me doesn't make the album and means that let me have had enough doesn't make the album. So I'm primed for some argument from from JP when we get to greatest hits about, you know, whether that should be included, how we remedy this. Do we just include another one? So I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, that'll be that'll be I like I'm always fascinated by greatest hits selections and yeah. exclusions and snubs. And we also had at that point the 74 minute time limit on the CD. Mm-hmm. You have double LP time limits. Uh, so there's lots of factors going on there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, next song, Two Gunslingers. Personal favorite of mine. I mean, I gave this a 10, which I know that probably would have raised a few eyebrows, but I just think this song is astonishing. And again, one of those little sleeper tracks that you couldn't release it as a single. It would never be a hit. Um, But when you dig into it, and I really dug into the lyrics in this one and got a little bit obsessed with them, and I'm probably going to go back and actually do a little bit more thinking about that too because, again, that universality is there, but you've got sort of... You know, this what I'd posited is I said the verse one sets up the human choice to stop fighting. Um, verse two moves the folks to the bystanders, the sort of the voyeuristic part of of human nature. And then verse three sort of pulls that camera to that fifty thousand foot view. So that again, whether that's intentional or whether that's just that intuitive thing that Tom seems to have as well, I don't know. And I'm probably layering on all sorts of meaning that isn't there. But I think that's the thing about great art, right? Is it can prompt you to think about those things and to consider those types of, you know, ideas a little bit more fully. And if you can put that around a framework like this, this little, what is it, three minutes, three minutes and nine seconds, this little sort of jaunty pop song on the on the face, that's a hell of a feat to pull that trick off, I think. It's uh, lyrically uh, deep. And we were seeing, like, he was always a good lyricist, but the story, story aspect of it, um, yeah. we see it popping up here in the last few albums. Uh, yeah. I, I just immediately thought a year so bad with the the story about his sister and ex-husband and yeah. you know just everything that's going on with that and how dark that is. But this one is more, he, he described it as a really good anti-war song. And yeah. I think it was written around the time of the first Gulf War. Uh, and that's what he was alluding to there. Uh, there. And, you know, I took that 
I think hearing this as a, you know, 18 year old or whatever, I, I took it that way. I took it as a, or, or at least a people that have to fight or do battle in a performative way. Yeah. Just deciding not to do that anymore. And then the, also the people around watching saying, I'm, this is the last one of these gunfights you're ever going to drag me to. Such a great uh, Yeah. And uh, lyrically just top notch. And I think this is a, a fan favorite. Uh, it's the fourth most streamed out uh, on the album. And like we're we're four songs in, we have a really good side A here. Yeah. I mean, and they and and then we're even talking about the uh, the next track. I think goes really. And you mentioned this on your episode podcast that uh, the next track pairs really well with this. And I would completely agree with that. There's a slower live acoustic version on American Treasure of Two Gunslingers. So they did play it live here and there. Uh, it, it was a fan favorite. Uh, the studio version was included on the anthology, mm-hmm. and I, I I did think it was interesting to, that they included that over king's highway or out in the cold because those two did not get included but there's a bunch of questionable <laughs> songs that are on the anthology I mean, maybe we could briefly talk about that that was like the last mca release that they yeah. he didn't see why it needed to be released and they were just they, they had all the hits on there but then they were trying to get their favorites on there so it was about it's a bunch of hodgepodge of yeah of some strange strange decisions but we could talk about that another time it's you know tell me tell me you've got a contractual obligation without telling me you've got a contractual <laughs> obligation right so yeah yeah, yeah and i was looking through I, I did do a bit of digging on two gunslingers they never played it with that sort of up-tempo arrangement whenever they played it live it was always that kind of stripped back very sort of you know direct delivery that, that tom used um yeah it's a it's a great song and yeah like that this last one of these gunfights you're going to drag me to is just such a such a nice bit of levity in the middle of this song but again i'd I've connected to this song, I think, too, because of that, you know, in, in World War One, when the when the troops stopped fighting and the English and German troops both came over the trenches to exchange Christmas gifts, Christmas 1914, to exchange Christmas gifts, game of football breaks out, and then they go back to slaughtering each other in their millions after there's something very human about that. And if that there's something in this song that lands in that same space for me. So I, there's just a really strong connection that I have with this song. The other line that... I thought about more this last time I listened to it was the two gunslingers rode out of town. Um, I didn't know if I should take that as they rode out of town separately or they rode out of town together. Like I think in my mind, mind's eye, they were riding out of town together, which is, would be a different, you know, than if they just took off separate ways and just decided not to (laughs) engage anymore. Um, But there's two different ways to read that one, that line as well. One the other, because I got to thinking about that too. Like I said, this that lyric is so he leaves so much open, and which is what he when he does that, he does it almost better than anyone else. There's no real explicit statement that the fighters are that they're fighting each other. You know, two gunslingers stepped in. They could be fighting against a posse, or they could be together, or they could be they could be they could be on the same side. You don't really know. Like it leaves all that open. And again, I think that that's why. It's one of the reasons that song works so well for me. It's just there's so much you can dig into lyrically in it. And then the music, I think, is is wonderful too. But That's interesting that you said that because I always viewed them as the two gunslingers battling oh, yeah, each for other. Sure. Yeah. But again, it's not explicit, right? So you could, if you wanted to make an argument from the other way, you could write that narrative too. It's, it's super cool. Um, Dark of the Sun, yeah. I mean, you, you literally couldn't pick any other song to follow it, right? So... <laughs> Yeah, this is like thematically going really well and just the the it's just sequenced. This album is really sequenced well and it's cohesive. Um and 
it, it probably is well perhaps due to jeff lynn and tom having complete control over this whole situation and having yeah. a you know a three thousand foot view of it or a thirty thousand foot view of it which whatever the saying is fifth most streamed uh song on the album um I definitely agree with your assessment. This pairs well with two gunslingers. It, it, and that was something that I hadn't noticed uh, until I listened to it after you said that. And I was like, Oh yeah, this really is a nice follow-up to that song. And yeah. in the book, he, uh, he said he regretted that he never played it live dark of the sun. Um, because that would have been a good one to, to work in there. Couldn't believe that when I read that, because that's, you know, where I always like go through and I look at satellite like fam and go, like, oh, I must've been playing. I mean, and there are, you know, there's probably, two, three dozen set lists on setlist.fm that are not filled in. So right. possibly, you know, and that's where I've got to go to Petty Live and start digging through those. But as far as I can tell, he never played it live. And he does say, right, you know, that... He says it, one, yeah. So he, that, he would know, or he would yeah. at least have an idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, great song about, you know, and it's that contradiction, the dark of the sun, which doesn't sound right, right? But it's all about that juxtaposition, it's light and shade, hope and despair, violence and love is what I'd written. And so that if you connect and if you want to sort of write that narrative and draw that narrative through from Two Gunslingers, if they let, you know, they they ride out of town and they're never seen from or never heard from again, maybe the the Two Gunslingers are the subjects of Dark of the Sun. You know, and I know that then you're in, then you're treading into dangerous waters if you've got same-sex relationships potentially or, or whatever else it is. But narratively, you can do it. You can You can join those dots and you can bring that through. And I think that that's... Again, that's just super cool if it's one story. And I'll tell you, like, this, the solo in this song, I, I, it blows my mind how good it is. Like, and it, I mean, from a, you know, it's not a shredder. I love Eddie Van Halen. I love Brian May. I love, you know, Satriani. I like the guys who can play a million notes a second, whatever. This solo for me is, it's just one of the best, one of the best solos anyone's ever done because it's still super technical too, by the way. Because you listen to it and he's do, where he's choosing to hammer on, pull off, where he's choosing to just slide on the fretboard and where he's choosing to actually strike the string is super, super, super specific to get a very specific tone. And it's only eight bars. Like, it's this small little solo, and it doesn't come exactly where you think it's going to be, but it changes the mood of the song again. It just lifts everything and makes it this beautiful, crystal clear section in, in the middle of a song I like anyway, but that the solo just elevates it. It's so good. It's just another example of why Mike Campbell is my favorite guitarist of all time i don't think i'm gonna qualify that anymore i listening going back to doing this podcast listening to everything all over again and especially in an album context where you're getting some of these uh minor hits or just album tracks and he's just crushing it every single time like he just knows what to play when to play it it just keeps getting better you know there's like i said the solos on this record that you sort of forget about but there's so many different styles of solo on this album too like you know you've got the slides you've got all or nothing's this sort of frenetic erratic thing and we'll talk about that song next and then you get built to last at the end there's this very different tone again so again it like you said it, it just he just knows what to play every single time it's unerring it's it's incredible i don't know if i mean there's lots of session players you can do that but to do that in a big band like the heartbreakers and like you say do it every single song for decades I, there's not many people who've matched that in my opinion and his personality just fits so well with Tom's and that he's happy to be the right-hand man and is humble enough, doesn't need to have to shine, to have the credit of everything and have all the glory. Like he yeah. just was a very nice compliment to to Tom Petty's uh, songwriting and guitar playing. Could have been a frontman yeah. in any other band as well, right? I mean, really, on by his own right, he's a good singer. 
he's not he's not Tom Petty level, but he, he could have been the front man. He's a bit a lot better than bloody Axel Rose and some other uh singers I could name. Um or I'd like rather listen to. But <laughs> but let's get in we're talking about Mike Campbell, let's get into all or nothing. Because holy hell, yeah, what that's a song his first, this is. That's his first uh co write uh credit on this album. Uh the last the last track on side A. Um you said it was released as a single not in the US. I think it was in uh, Germany or Germany. Let me just double check. I think what, was, what, I think... what the what the decision? You know, what's the decision process behind that? Like, well, we're going to release it as a single in Germany, but not uh, in the United States. I, I don't think, know. I, I think they do look at radio plays sometimes. Like, if, if a song for some reason is getting lots of radio plays, okay, well, maybe we'll put that out. You know, we'll put that out as a as a single, or there's they think there's a certain sensibility that matches with what's going on. I, who the hell knows? Eh? It's it's super weird. I was a bit surprised that you gave it a 10 because, you know, just my memory of the song was like, it's a really solid, good track. Uh, but when going back and listening to it and just listening to it, it does take a step up, I think. Oh. Uh, Tom said it's mostly, quote unquote, mostly Mike's track. He said you could almost take Mike for granted because anything you asked him to do, he did it and more. I don't ever remember throwing anything his way that he couldn't do. He could do it and he could do it better than you thought. He will give you back your idea better than you had it in the first place. That's a great musician. And that was from the book. Yeah. Like he also said that this one, he wished that it had gotten radio airplay over out in the cold. But then later on, because he had said that prior to the book, and the uh, and Zola brought it up and asked him about it, and he said yes. But then we went back and played out in the cold, and I really liked the lyrics, and I really liked that song yeah. as well. So he sort of qualified it and kind of. Uh, wavered on that stance that it should have gotten ra radio airplay over out in the cold. Interesting just to, to think back to that and how an artist also wants certain songs to get more respect yeah. or thinks that certain songs should get more airplay than others. Um, and that this is all going on in, in Tom's mind after he, the album comes up. Well, you know, I know lots of people who are recording artists who write and, and record and release albums. And they say, I mean, universally, it's like, well, your, your perception of a specific song could even just be tied to, oh, that was such a hard song to get over the line in the studio. Or I was having a shit time at home or whatever it might be while we were recording that song or mixing or whatever. So those associations sometimes can be, or there's, you know, it could be the opposite. It could be, I think this is the best song I've ever written. I know it's not a single or an album release, but I find this, there's something about this that I love. So of course those things are going to be, at the time when you're in the thick of it, that's what you're going to be thinking. But I think that's the beauty of Paul Zolo's book is it did force Tom to be a little bit more, I think, forgiving of his own music and his own art. And so I say, okay, well, actually, yeah, that's a better song than I remember it was. So It starts off interesting lyrically. Your daddy was a sergeant major. You didn't want to wanna, but he made you, and you don't know where this is going. <laughs> but it's a, then, he, then he says, wipe his brass from time to time. It left a picture in your mind and then gets on with the rest of the song. But it's almost yeah. like... Uh, and I would, I would assume he's talking about a, a daughter, but perhaps it's a son. But, um, you know, you want it all, you want it all, all or nothing, you want it all. And then the third verse, sweet chariots of L.A. swing low at twilight time. The small smog makes a rainbow. So keep one eye on the weather. You had it good, but you want it better. You know, you know. Interesting. I mean, come on. That is, that's poetry. Yeah. Right. That's just pure poetry. That, that And I think this is, you know, Mike Campbell said that. He brought this in pretty much fully formed, and you can tell it's a Mike Campbell um, joint. But when Tom wrote these lyrics, you're like, "Holy shit, dude! Wow, okay." Because all the oh, verses my... in this are so good, you know. Yeah, the second verse: uh, "My load is wide, my street is narrow, my thin skin is 
thicker. My heart is tougher. I don't mind yeah. working, but I'm scared to suffer. Oh, and the way it delivers, my skin is thicker. Yeah, I just my love that. It's tougher. so cool, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's nothing about this song that I don't love, and it's one of those that. I remember the first time I heard this one as I sort of got into Petty and thought, wow, I wouldn't have seen that type of song coming out of Petty. And especially it's it's got a very sleazy, dirty, slick kind of, you know, like underground feel to it that doesn't, it really does contrast with everything else we've heard on side one of the album so far. So it shouldn't really fit. And yet Jeff Lynn, Tom and Mike figure out a way production wise to get it to be the exact song that you need to close side one again just it's, it totally, it's a weird, it totally works genius, you know yeah that is this is a really good side a but it's up there with his all of his side days and i love the way this one ends too just land on that nothing cut all the instruments out and just have that vocal on nothing very clever right all those little just those little production things that they're all sitting there and you can just imagine jeff with, oh i've had an idea why don't we just cut out the music a little bit early because then nothing is double meaning you know and then they go off and have tea and they come back oh that works yeah that'll do you know so that's my Jeff Lynn impression, by the way. Very good. I didn't know that you had that skill. <laughs> it's just a Birmingham. It's just a generic Birmingham, Birmingham accent. So. <laughs> okay, well, side two opens up with a song that, again, you think, that's kind of strange that you're opening up this side of the album with this one. Was never played live, all the wrong reasons. What are your thoughts on this one? Uh, as I was growing up listening to this uh, contemporaneously, um, this was my this was the one i thought was the sneakiest awesome song on the album like yeah. i and i my tastes have grown a bit gotten maybe more complex or just you know just aging <laughs> in general but i really like the melody the opening melody it's extremely uh grandiose and tom uh compared it to free fallen and I could definitely see that in terms of the like the high aspirational uh, music. Yeah. But I see it as also uh, as a spiritual cousin to Somewhere Under Heaven, which was written a few years later for the Wildflower Sessions. wasn't released until a long time later, but definitely with the same sort of vibe. Musically, it has a different melody, uh, but it has got that same grandeur as both those tracks to me. Yeah. Um, it sounds to me like it's about a middle-class father and his daughter, working-class father and his daughter, um, I, I'm not sure story-wise what else is happening here, uh, but the it's it's very God. It's just uh, uh, the music to it is pretty incredible. And Benmont really liked it apparently, and was pushing yeah. for them to play it. I believe um, it sounds like it's about the moral dec decay of America. Quote: Things that wouldn't have been tolerated suddenly were almost celebrated. I think that's what the quote about this song. Right. Uh, Pretty, this is an interesting one and not one. I don't think they ever played it live. Um, no, I might be wrong. I might be wrong, but I, I wouldn't think this was one that would, but it's a, it's a really good one. And it's a great way to start side two. Well, it's got, again, you've got the, you've got the, the first verses, you know, like it says, it tell, tells a story. Trouble blew in on a cold, dark wind. It came without no warning. And that big old house went up for sale. They were on the road by morning. And that was sort of semi-biographical where Tom knew someone where, he said, like, their neighbors, just one day they were gone. Like, they packed up, they, 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 the market had crashed, they lost all the money, and then they were just gone. So that's where he takes that from a situation um, that, he, that he's observed. And then the second verse, well, she grew up hard, she grew up fast in the age of television. She made it all, a bit of how to have it all, it became a new religion. That's I think that is a bit broader, and I don't think that that's necessarily the same person from the first verse. 
And especially because then the third verse becomes that very universal thing, you know, where the sky begins, the horizon ends, despite the best intentions, a big old man goes up for sale, it becomes his own invention. It becomes his own invention. Like what a frigging line that is as well, right? So you've got yeah. this weird little, it's almost like a, it's, it's like a vignette thing, right? It's almost like a Tarantino comp compendium kind of movie where it's just three distinct things, but they just sort of fit together. A brilliant piece of writing again, uh, lyrically. And actually, they could be the same characters. Yeah, it could be. If you yeah. want to read it that way as well, but I, I agree with your assessment that maybe it's maybe it's not. I just it's just a very I just the music and it, it's just incredible. Well, you know, it's um, he talks about Ben Mont. I was reading in, in, in the book. He tells Paul Zola, cracked up when reading Bob Dylan's book. There's a bit in there about Ben Mont pestering to play, pestering him to play certain songs. God bless him. Ben Mont keeps the vigil. He keeps us honest. <laughs> you know, so. But also, too, that like you think about this song, not one that you would think, because it's not a big Ben Mont song. There's not a ton of Ben Mont on this song. It's mainly guitars and sort of the melody. It doesn't, there's not a ton of Ben Mont. He's not shredding piano. He's not playing anything intricate. But again, that's where all the Heartbreakers were musicians and they cared about the songs. And so Ben Mont loves this song, so he wants to play it and he'll find a way to fit in. But yeah. I'll let you same thing. I, another one that was like, man, this song's great. And so I ended up learning this on the piano because they're super simple chords. They're really just cowboy chords, right? It's dead easy. But I, I found that because, you know, the song actually changes, the chords actually ch all change. But I found that if you play, I can't remember which key it's in, but if you play, it's called pedal point. So basically if you keep the same bass notes and change the chord over top of that through the verses, it really works well and slightly changes the feel of it. It was pretty cool. But I'm going to learn that. I think I might do a version of this one. I think I might cover it. Nice. I like it that much. You gave it an eight. So that's a solid score for an album yeah. track like this. Yeah. Next track, I gave a seven. Too good to be true. I think overall, if we're sitting on, we do have to, you know, you can sort of, if you're thinking about the quality or strength of the songs on the album, I think this might just about be the weakest, which doesn't mean it isn't a good song, but it's the one I think of, it's probably the one that I'm going to listen to the least if I'm sort of just picking random songs from Into the Great Wide Open. What does this one land for you? This one was, let's see, it looks like it was released in the UK, and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, is that is that right? Um, this was the second track on that tour after Kings of Highway. So they would start off with two tracks, and then they would typically go into I Won't Back Down and Free Fall. Right. Uh, so, <laughs> that's just showing off, man. Come on. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> but I mean, I think this is, sort of writing you know from a concert standpoint he's 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 plugging a couple of the new songs early when the when the fans are very yeah. open and excited and you start to you start to play three or four new songs in a row then people start to get a little restless so he had, he had definitely had his finger on the pulse of how to do a set list yeah uh but this is a it was a good second track i think on for those concerts um didn't chart in the united states uh i would describe it as like a solid album track um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that they released it as a single in the UK. I'm, I'm interested to know the story behind that because um, yeah. there are other candidates on the album um, they could have released as singles that might have done a bit better. But it's a, it was, it's a pretty good track, and I, I it's, again, it's not. I wouldn't skip it. So I would. Just, oh, God, this no. is one of those albums you put it on, or I put it on, and I just listen to the whole thing all the way through. If I have to go do something else, I press pause, come back, <laughs> press play, and just listen to the whole thing as as a whole. I think it's the only song on the album, and this is where I can think. I think I ended up at a seven because I do think, like, it's kind of a you know what, what the kids call it, it's a vibe. This song, right? And you can sort of feel, you can feel the Pacific Coast Highway at dusk. It's got that mm -hmm. kind of feel to it, right? But I'm not convinced about that false ending. 
for me, there's something about that. And then when it comes back and it's like, I think that's just your natural endpoint. I think false endings in general, I, I'm just not a fan of. Yeah. But as I listen to that, I'm just waiting for it to kick back in because I've heard it so many times <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yeah. other way. I'm looking at the lyrics here. and How do you interpret this? Uh, her imagination ran wild. Could this really happen to me? She could barely hold back the tears. Everything she had waited for, everything she dared to dream suddenly was outside her door. But it's too good to be true. So something's out, something's like right there that is too good to be true. I think, it, you know, it, it's that opportunity that, yeah, well, I, you know, it's that imposter syndrome maybe where, well, it can't, I can't be getting this job. There's Something's got to, the axe is going to fall here, right? The sort of Damocles is hanging over me. Something's going to go wrong. That's the way I interpret that. Yeah. Uh, there was no talk of giving in. And just as hope was wearing thin, her eyes were like a child again, too good to be true. Morning on the outskirts of town, sitting in the traffic alone. You don't know what it means to be free. Yeah. Hmm. Love to, though, that that's, um, there's no rhyme in that last verse. And I like it when artists do that, when they're, they're so confident in, no, this is the, what the lyric needs to be, um, that I'm not going to look for a rhyme with free or time or whatever. That's what it is, and that's where it stands, and it's perfect. Too good to be true, yeah. Was that ever, yeah, how many times was that one played live? I don't think I wrote that one down. Probably pretty often it was on that. Uh, I can look at the statistics for this. 48 times, but only on the Instagram yeah. Wide Open Tour. It wasn't played after that, so yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was always the second track on that tour. Yeah, I was looking at that. After you said that, I was like, <laughs> oh man, and then you go straight into two of the biggest hits of the era, right? You know, so very cool. Okay, next song. Another one I think I might have rated a wee bit low. You gave it a nine. I gave it an eight. Oh, I thought you gave it a nine. I thought I gave it an eight. All right. Uh, maybe I was maybe I was wish casting my score <laughs> on that. Cause and that's the that's one of the things I've found with doing this this pod is when I get to the end and I start thinking about the songs as a whole and when I've had a lot because when I'm sitting down and listening to them, I'm really being nerding out and focusing on well, do I like that snare sound? And do I like the way that this transition works and whatever else? And you sort of, you're not, you're not scaling back and listening to it recreationally. Every time I've listened to it in the call since, my God, it's just a rip roaring song. Great lyric, great tempo, unrelenting. And it's that sort of, to me, it's, it's got a, it's like a cousin to running down a dream. It's that same type of tempo and rhythm and it's got the big solo and whatever else. Right. So. Yeah. I mean, this is a banger. This is a classic Tom Petty banger. I was surprised that, it wasn't a Campbell, Mike Campbell thing, yeah. although his fingerprints are on it. Uh, he wasn't a co-writer. This was Jeff and uh, Tom. Uh, but I put on, a, I have a playlist of Tom Petty bangers and it's like American Girl, Refugee, Jamming Me, You Wreck Me, Free Girl Now, Out in the Cold. And there's, you know, there's a few others that are wow. just like great, great uh, driving songs and yeah. just relentless, uh, relentless rockers. Yeah. Uh, I've, this is a funny one to me because I don't know what is going on with this, with the fans or with streaming or whatever. I think it's criminally understreamed. It's only 1.9 million streams, which is the seventh most on the album. It's the 107th wow. most in his catalog. And it, I would understand that if it was just some album track that never got any radio airplay or anything, but it was number one on the U S rock chart. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, and it was probably the third biggest song in terms of commercial success on the album chart wise. Uh, so, and it's got, it's got all the hallmarks of a fan favorite in terms of being just a mega rocker. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
very very unusual to me that this is not more beloved or at least on more playlists or being streamed more at this point Scott, i love that spoken word bit in this song too stand in the doorway i'm out walking that whole bit again you sort of and then it just rips back into i'm out in the cold body and soul so clever and again it's it's almost a little bit again we're talking about sequencing here too good to be true it sort of follows on mood wise again the day fell down the air got cold i walked out in the street daydreamed for a mile or two staring at my feet like a wicked boy that's a great line too but it's got that same i just see california in my mind's eye when i'm, I'm thinking of this and you see this this dusty road on the outskirts of town they've, they've got that same feel to them and that sort of that same kinship that i think again just sequence wise absolutely perfect should we take a moment to talk about the album cover yeah let's do that it is, uh, I don't know if you did any research on this. It looks yeah. like it's, uh, and I didn't know what it was from either. This is an unusual artwork yeah. for a for a Petty album, but it looks like it's a slightly cropped painting of Autumn Landscape by Czech artist Jan Mat- Matukla. Matulka. Interesting. Yeah. Any, it's just, a. am looking at the album cover right now. It's just like, for a Petty, for a petty album, this is extremely unusual. I wonder how they chose this. Well, I think Tom was a, you know, and him and Dana, obviously, they were fans of, you know, they, they bought art. Um, Harry Companion was commissioned. That was a commission piece by one of their favorite artists. This one, I think, is, it's ab, you know, it's just slightly abstract. It's got this weird texture and quality to it. But you've got that road leading out past the edge of the, the scene, right? Which I think is, that's your Into the Great Wide Open. That's your Gunslingers leaving. That's where, just thematically, I think that that really, really fits. And the colors are very sort of autumn, autumnal, and so I think there's there are elements of the of the image itself that I think work with a lot of the themes in the in the album for me. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think the, the the painting style and the subject. It looks like it's a little town uh, that you'd be driving through or walking through. Um, fits with the with the album as a whole and in, with the album title. Mm-hmm. Um, I just never did any research on it. I just you know, whatever, looked at it. And I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. It's actually, a, it's owned by the, it's called Autumn Landscape and it's owned by the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So I might yeah. have to go up and check it out. Yeah, if you do that, send a, get a photo, send it to me. I'd love to yeah. see it in, in situ. And of course, my, it might not be displayed just because it's owned by them. Yeah. There's lots of stuff that just rotates through. Or That's true. Know. I'll but probably go up there and it won't be up there. It won't be on, on display. <laughs> Second, second piece of you know, like an actual pre-existing piece of art that he used after Southern Accents, right? So, and I don't, yeah, I'm, I, you know what? As I'm thinking about it, I don't know whether I was ever able to find out whether Tom specifically chose the artwork for either, or whether they were sort of brought and suggested, or whether they were just chosen by the label or whatever. I'm not too sure on exactly how much control no. and how much interest he had in in some of those things. Or like what would be the rights usage of this? I'm just yeah, you'd pay a license. You'd pay a licensing fee, license right? Fee. I mean, you would. I think. I mean, well, if the if the uh, if the artist is um if they're alive, um, I think Jan Matolka was. I think he was sort of around the early 1900s, I believe, if I remember. Yeah, I think he died in 72, so he's so he would have been deceased. So then his estates, yeah, or or the LA County. I mean, the LA County Museum. Um, depending on what rights they brought from the estate to either just house it or to actually own it, then it might be the might be the museum themselves that you pay to. So yeah. Now I want to know how much it costs because can I can I try to buy this? Just kidding. I don't think I can afford it. <laughs> I 
much is it worth? Now I want to know. Because that what what a piece of art that would be to have on your wall. God almighty, can you imagine? Well, you'd want a bloody good insurance policy on it. And you could do Tom For Petty sure. fan tours of your house, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right, you and I will meet again, John. Yes, next, you gave it a seven. Album, I so did you give probably, it a seven. You, you put this tied with uh, Too Good to Be True as... Yeah. And we're not saying it, you're not, I mean, it's not saying it's weak. It's just the yeah. uh, not your favorites. Uh, you also have, oh, I, I didn't see your built to last score as well. So, yeah. okay. So those three you have as your least favorite or lowest rated. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that the three songs, I mean, again, there's there's some great lyrics in this song. A red winged hawk is circling, the black top stretches out for days. Yeah. How could I get so close to you and still feel so far away? And one of my listeners actually pointed out that there's a, there's a sort of a symbiosis there with American Girl. You know, she was American Girl raised on promises. There's like a, a little bit of a, a callback, maybe thematically there. I just think that you know, it's like it's a catchy hook. It's a nice little memorable idea that Tom puts in our heads. But I just think it's as you said, it's a, it's a good solid album track. I don't think it's much more than that for me. It seemed like reading about this one in the I think it's the book. Uh, Zolo intimated that it was a spiritual or a song about faith and, mm -hmm. you know, l losing a loved one and then meeting them again. And you could certainly in infer that, uh, especially that line, one day all the rules will bend and you and I will meet again. Yeah. And then I then like, OK, so I went into some other, you know, sites where they talk about lyrics and stuff. I think it's song meanings. Um, someone said, well, it's about, you know, uh, a relationship that just can't work but one day they'll meet again i probably lean towards the former because it does seem a bit overt that this is about perhaps well i don't know somewhere on the far off place i will recognize your face that also kind of you could definitely in, infer that that is uh you know somebody yeah. that somebody passed away and you see them again somewhere yeah. someplace and it could be a platonic thing, right? It could be an old friend that you just sort of lost mm -hmm. touch with, or and I think I maybe I, I mentioned that yet, but again, it's another fairly open lyric that you can sort of drop yourself into and make yourself the star of the scene, right? Again, again, it's that's what he did so well. Um, yeah, one day all the rules will bend. I love just the, the sort of the implication there. It could be what rules? You know, it could be the rules of I think I'd said in the episode something. It could be same-sex marriage it could be interracial marriage which was you know a, a problem in centuries of decades past it could be the 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 universal rules of physics could be bent and we could yeah. we could meet someone from a different time just again it's just it's such a great line but the song itself overall doesn't i just have the same impact as you know um, out in the cold or all the wrong reasons or dark of the sun it's it's not got the, the extra sauce, the special sauce that those songs have. So, and again, a seven still well above average. You yeah, know, so I don't good, really feel good. bad about giving it a seven. You know, yeah. There's some some albums don't even have a single seven on it. Everything's lower. No. <laughs> uh, it's I, I have wrote down solid album track. Uh, no skips on this album, which is what I put for stuff that I don't have a strong feeling about, but I yeah. like to listen to it when it comes on. Uh, the gorgeous guitar throughout really stood out to me. The harmonies. Uh, I like the jamming at the end as well. Um, yeah. But again, I don't. I wouldn't. You know, put this up towards the top of the songs in the album. And that I mean, it does have one thing in it that I'm pretty sure that it's the first time you hear it on a Heartbreakers album is where you get Mike and Benmont sharing a solo, where Mike solos first and then Benmont comes in. And I don't think they've done that to this point that I can remember. And they don't do it very often afterwards. So it's got that little bit of uniqueness to it. But yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a good little song. All right. So making some noise. Yeah, baby. Oh, you like this one. Oh, you good it Lord, yeah. 
to peak to 30 on the US rock chart. And I guess that would would that be just due to airplay? Yeah. Um another Mike Campbell co-writer. It's one of two on the album, which is I don't know if that's low for him. Uh but he always seemed like he had one or two at a minimum. Uh you know, unsurprisingly has a great guitar riff. Uh and this is one I actually have a funny like personal story about this one. I went to see Mike Campbell and the Dirty Knobs play the Tom Petty uh it wasn't really it wasn't a show for tom petty's birthday i was at the bellwether and the, the 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 show happened to land on tom petty's birthday so he sent out an instagram post and said that we're going to do a full set of dirty knobs tracks and then we're going to do a set of tom petty and the heartbreakers music yeah. and you know a lot of him a lot of them were his co-writes some of them weren't but this is one that he played and i noticed when he played it i remember that he had not been playing this song on their tour as a cover song or on any of their tours really so it was yeah. one that they kind of brought up out of nowhere and he screwed up the lyrics <laughs> it was the only it was the only one that he started messing up and he looked at his guitarist uh his lead guitarist on his left i don't know his name but they kind of chuckled and <laughs> he was trying to help him because the he that that guy seemed to know all the lyrics for everything yeah. and he quipped uh i knew this was going to happen and then he just started <laughs> improvising so he started making up lyrics on the spot which worked pretty well like to yeah. his credit um but uh tom said i think in the book that this was a fun one to play live uh making some noise i mean it is kind of like a we're a rowdy band type song and it definitely fits within what mike brought to the band in terms of his songwriting and the, the songs that he uh were, was co-credited for all have the same sort of vein to them uh yeah. that ended up becoming heartbreaker song so uh it, that was that was a funny moment at that show we talk about that though that's why you go to see live music a band that just plays the songs exactly as they are on the album will just sit home and listen to the album save the money you don't get beer spilled on you and have to deal with crowds just listen to the album i want to go and see a performance and when stuff like that happens and the band just deals with it and they they laugh about it those are the moments you remember right those, those are the stories those are the anecdotes you bring up on podcasts yeah, and he uh, even brought out, uh, he brought three guitars to the show that he had played on the first three albums and played, used those guitars on some of the yeah. songs that he was playing through. And he, there was a, I don't know if it was a Rickenbacker or it was something, and it was so heavy that he's just like, I, he like halfway through the song, put it down and <laughs> got another <laughs> guitar uh, from his roadie because it was just so gargantuan yeah. that he couldn't, uh, didn't want to carry it uh, anymore and play it, so that was cool to see those guitars that were so instrumental to that their early success. And super cool that he still got them too. Right. Yeah. You know I mean? Cause I know he sold off quite a lot of his collection, but those ones from those early albums, I'll bet you they'll never, they'll never leave the Campbell family. Right. Because they're yeah, kind of rock and roll sure. history. Too, too important. Those. Yeah. You talked about, so like two co-writes on this album and that did vary. There were some albums, you know, I think let me up had quite a few co-writes and there, there's different levels of that. Uh, yeah. Gonna... I would say these, I'm looking at the lyrics. It's not, I guess it is, I wouldn't say it's super deep, but it's, it's about a guy sounds like he's, you know, about a, a musician yeah, and uh, telling a little story and, but it's just about rocking out. It seems like, and he's also mentions this Canyon story where, yeah. Uh, I was Laurel Canyon or wherever that, uh, where I don't, maybe I don't think it was Laurel Canyon. Maybe it was, uh, but he was playing his guitar and then he could hear somebody across the Canyon uh, start playing guitar as well. And you can almost hear the, the canyons were set up in such a way that you could almost hear a full conversation 
Yeah. If you're listening carefully. Um, but he says here from across the canyon, a guitar plays through an amplifier on a long delay. It was an old metal melody. I recognize the song. I had an amplifier too, so I played along. I just love that. And I love that choice of because you could say I had a guitar too, right? Would yeah. work totally totally would work. <laughs> I had an amplifier too. But amplifier too is just so much funnier and so much quirkier and more distinct and unique. I love it, man. I just think that's such a great line. And then, you know, it, it's about working musicians to me. It's about, you know, you, you gotta you just gotta keep working. You gotta get down there. And then when you do get up there on stage, look at look at me, Mama, I'm making some noise. And I like that making some noise, meaning playing loud rock music. I just like I gave it a nine because it just this I love rock and roll, man. I love it. You know, I know you do too. And when that opening lit kick kicks in, I'm thrown back to the Beatles for sale. I'm thrown back to the Rolling Stones. I'm thrown back to the Kinks, all those rock bands that I listened to when I was a kid that infected me and, and sort of cemented this lifelong love of this type of music. This song just encapsulates that for me. I love it. Yeah. And I believe that they often closed. Yeah. Show closer 30 times out of the 50 uh, set list that we have for that tour they use this as the show closer uh the other another 13 times they used it as the main set closer so they definitely yeah. felt like this was a, a strong one to finish either the set or the uh the show on when it's where i commented in the episode that i again my only slight thing that i was like i don't want to fade out on this song i want a big rock ending of course you don't always put those on albums but they definitely could have ended this one you know they could have done something with it um, but it makes sense to do is a, the big, yeah, the big rock ending, the big da -la 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 -la, and Stan going nuts on the drums and then bang out. You don't, right. It does work. There should be a, uh, let's see that live version I have of the Oakland show. Yeah. It's on the Titan highway. Yeah. I'm going to go back and listen to that and see how they, they ended that song. Oh, it's epic, man. It's epic. Yeah. Yeah. It's so oh, good. You're going to enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah, I really wish they would. That's one thing, I, you know, the estate going back through and looking at different things that they can release, like, a, you know, an upscaled version of the video released, you know, on streaming or on DVD or Blu-ray or something. And then I'd love to have this on vinyl because it's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant live performance. Yeah, I don't know how, like, I wonder how profitable it is to go back and and release stuff yeah. like that. I mean, I guess you could get, I mean, it just depends on, sales i guess like what yeah. is the demand for for a show like that live i mean among the hardcore yeah i think it would be I mean, high and, there, yeah. you know, i mean if you think about it, the Fillmore release and the wallflowers and all the rest that's those are for hardcore fans you're not you're not buying either of those things if you're a casual tom petty fan right really you know probably not all right built to last yeah you gave this a seven give it a seven yeah um I think it's another one of those sort of good album track. It's really, it's an odd song, right? Like it's a different, very different thing. And Tom said that they had a lot of trouble finding the rhythm for it because it just wasn't working. It doesn't work with a straight backbeat. You can't really, you can't swing it on the three. There's a lot of things you can't do with it. So getting into this sort of, you know, someone said working in a coal mine, it's got that same type of rhythm to it. It when that happens, and as soon as you get the rhythm, it's like, ah, yeah, there we go. Now we can actually get someone with this song because now we've got the right feel to it um built to last i think it's a good little sentiment to finish the album i think you know it, maybe it's like you know i said maybe it's a he's at that point in his marriage to jane where things are really i mean they're not falling apart they're, they're pretty much falling apart by this point right and he knows that it's really just a matter of time now but it's, it's almost that sort of that last kind of i'm gonna say this and maybe maybe if i say this and say it out loud it'll make things better and maybe it'll get me over that hump and then again it could be a statement about the band as well we were built to last is 
you know, we, okay, we're coming back in now and working with Jeff Lynn. I know you guys aren't happy, but we we're, we're we're a band, like we're a band, and I care about the band, and I want to I want to be a part of a band, and maybe it's that that thing's coming through too. It's an interesting choice as the album closer. I I like it. Uh, I like the track generally. It, it what's funny is that Tom was quoted as saying, "I don't know if I really like that one." Yeah, in the book, <laughs> and he said it was the only song on the album that he wrote while the sessions were going on. I think yeah. when they got it done, that was like a big, I think maybe they just wanted 12 songs. Uh, and when they got it done, it was a big relief. Is this the one where you thought maybe it was uh, from the garage? hundred percent. Was... I'd be, I'd be amazed okay. if this wasn't, because it feels like, and, and I also kind of went further and said, I think that I, I think it's probably just Mike, Tom and Jeff, I think. Cause I don't think that that's how we play in the bass. It sounds, it sounds like Jeff Lynn playing that bass line to me. Um, there's no, I mean, there's no kick on it. There's no kick drum, right? So you've got those toms and whether it's a snare or hand claps, I can't really quite tell either. So the percussion, Jeff Lynn's credited with percussion on the album. Um, Tom, Mike, or sorry, Mike and Jeff and Howie are all credited with bass. It wouldn't surprise me if this was one that Tom had had hanging around and someone came up with that. They were, you know, they're mixing something else or they're hanging around in the garage and they're talking about what they're going to do. And then this song grows naturally and the three of them just knock it out and get it done and it's got that late night feel to it just in my mind that's what that's where this song was born out of and i don't know if that's true but obviously but it, it would be interesting to also hear this album with making some noise as the closer but with a big rock finish yeah uh as opposed to built to, you know adding built to last year at the at the end that'd be something interesting to play with but we don't have access to a mic making some noise with a big rock finish unless we use the the live version of it but um yeah because that could because if you think about them using it on a tour as the album closer making some noise that would make it a a, a likely good uh album closer as well but i, I like built to last i think it's it feel yeah. it does feel to me like it's tagged on but I, but it's a good song but it's and this is where you know when when i'm drawing comparisons and when i sort of make my assertion that i think it's a stronger album than full moon fever in in some ways that it's not tacked on in the same way that zombie zoo is right because zombie zoo is it's a throwaway song i mean it's a, it's a fun upbeat poppy little thing but it's just something that tom wrote it's a silly frivolous thing where i don't think this one is quite that um it's again it's, it's a seven for me it's it's, it's in that bracket of those second tier or third tier songs on the album but it's not frivolous like it does actually have there's a little bit of weight to the lyric i think Zombie Zoo is, well, I guess you, you probably, you have your theory about that. Zombie Zoo is well-liked. It's, it's up there in terms of the streaming, surprisingly high. Yeah, I know. Given, <laughs> and you have your theories that, oh, I'll just throw on Zombie Zoo. Yeah. Or it, maybe it maybe it's added to all the Halloween playlists on Spotify, and that's why it gets played. There you go, too. I mean, I was going to, so we sort of said, I think, offline there, that we both feel that this album is sequenced phenomenally and one of the things we usually do on these episodes is we go through and we try and sort of say well if, if i was sequenced with this this is maybe what i would do there aren't any additional songs there's not really anything to change other than there is that conversation like you say around well if you flip built to last and making some noise does that make it more of a a natural end on making some noise with a big finish because like if you if you just fade out i don't think it does quite i think the fade it on this one actually works because it goes back to just that Tom and the, and the bass line. And then you've got that sort of built to last. It, it sort of decays out into the Great Wide Open. So in that way, it's like, yeah, I think I think it probably is the natural ending point. Um, if you were to switch it, though, if you were to put making some noise last, 
where would you put built to last? Would you would you precede it? Would you just put it in the in the eleventh spot? Well, if it, if it just went to the eleventh spot, it would come after you and I will meet again, which is an interesting pairing, mm-hmm. uh, lyrically, thematically. Yeah, maybe we'll have to, um, have to listen. Yeah, I don't like this. Is you know I said before we got on that I I don't have a producer of the day s- sequencing for this because I think they just did a really good job. Yeah. Um, with the sequencing, like I just wouldn't change anything uh, just this conversation has sparked that question making some noise would that work better as the closer but i think this you know i i think i would need a i don't know i think i would need a big rock finish yeah for that well, to be the closer but maybe you, you said you said the fading out into the great white open might be might work as well of if right. making some noise was the closer uh did well, I misunderstand? I was talking about built to last. Um, I think that the fade out on that song, oh, it's sort of the song fades out into the great wide open, right? So I think that in the in the scope of the album, in the context of the album, I think it does work if you want to think about it in that mind and overthink about it, which I always bloody do. Um, what I might do is I'll dig around and I'll dig around on because I can split the the tracks with my with my AI that I that I use. And I'll see if I can figure out some way to end making some noise rather than have it fade out. And I'll send it to you in a little playlist and we'll see what it sounds like. That'd be interesting to see. That's the only question I have is maybe would that be better as the closer? And then you and I meet meet again and Built to Last might work together as well. But it also might be, I don't know. It might be too much of a muchness, potentially, but yeah. But overall, this album, uh, you know, I think you... The, the one thing we haven't touched on, which was controversial, is not that you think this is necessarily a better album than Full Moon Fever, although it does sound like you believe that. But you also, and I, and I respect that, uh, I would put Full Moon Fever ahead of it just because the uh, the highs are so high. And even yeah. the album tracks, there's so many of them on Full Moon Fever that I love. And what Full Moon Fever means to me personally, yeah, um, I would put it ahead. But your, you have an assertion, and I'll just introduce it and you explain it but you don't think that full moon fever is the second chapter you think that this is the second chapter of petty's career i think this kicks it off yeah so i've been trying to form it because i knew this was going to come up because we talked about it a little bit offline but there's something in there's something in the lyric writing the way he writes the lyrics on this album that just it changes from full moon fever and it's not to say that i mean there's some bloody brilliant lyrics on full moon fever but the consistency with which he seems to be sort of being more, I don't know if it's whether it's introspective or whether it's, there's a, there's a bigger intentionality in the lyrics in this album that I find than there is in Full Moon Fever. Full Moon Fever is a collection of songs. It's a collection of great songs, but this feels like a, a statement. This feels like a, a direction now to take the his songwriting in for the rest of his career. And Full Moon Fever is almost like, I've had a shit ton of fun with Jeff Lynne. So let's kind of, let's draw that all to a close. We'll do this album. I'll write all these songs with Jeff. And which was, you know, it was a very loose, ad hoc kind of way they went about that. And they just sat down and wrote songs, almost in the way that the Wilburys did. Whereas, like I said, this one, if you think about the albums that follow now, Wildflowers, Last DJ, Echo, you know, Mojo, there's there's an intentionality behind all of those. And there's a very specific thing that each of those albums is trying to do. And she's the one's kind of the outlier there because obviously that's a soundtrack album and it's just a little bit different. But that to me, it's just that change in, I'm going to write an album and it's going to be a, it's going to be a specific thing on its own. 
and and again, I just think the lyrics on this album are just that next step on from from anything he did before. So that's where I was coming from with that uh, that idea. I would I, I would agree that the lyrics are more advanced, uh, and yep. there, it seems like there's more depth to them from a macro standpoint. Um, but musically, Full Moon Fever and Into the Great Wide Open are so close or yeah, they're very, sure. very similar and you said it yourself that this was an extension of full moon fever in terms of having jeff this worked well with jeff let's bring jeff in with the band and so to me after let me up i've had enough i think the band was at a bit of a crossroads mm-hmm. and that is a very to me thick line because all of a sudden tom does a solo album which is something new Tom is now working with Jeff Lynn, which is something new. Um, Tom is off with the Wilburys, which is something new. So there's this whole span of time where the Heartbreakers are going, are we still a band? Yeah. You know, I think that had creeped up into, they talk about it. Uh, and he always said, I was always coming back, but I wanted to do this. I think things had gotten for him a bit stale or a bit repetitive or a bit something because let me if I had enough wasn't uh, just wasn't a monster hit or a big hit for him I think they were you know they, they weren't reaching the highs of damn the torpedoes or hard promises mm-hmm. and he had to shift gears so I think that starting point for the chapter two is full moon fever I do agree that there are developments happening within the chapter that are a big step forward yeah. Um, but as I said to you in the uh, in the DMs there, I completely disagree with the fact that this would be the start of the second chapter. That's fine, right? Absolutely. We can, uh, agree to disagree. Uh, I just think there's too many similarities between Full Moon Fever and The Great Wide Open to put them in separate chapters of, in his book. I suppose then you could almost think of, you could think of it in three chapters then. You could think of verse, bridge, chorus, and maybe this is the bridge. Maybe Full Moon Fever and Into The Great Wide Open are the bridge, right? Because Let Me Up I've Had Enough was almost... Tom getting that whole period out of his system and just completely, you know, not working with the producer, literally just getting in the room and sometimes writing the songs on the floor as they're recording them. So maybe that's the, maybe there's an end point there as well, right? So I don't know. Like I said, I, I, to me, it was just, it was more about the lyrics and it's more about, it's more just about that cohesiveness. But I, I totally understand and respect your position too, John, you know? Well, I mean, I think you're going to reflect on this and then end up agreeing with me. Uh, but, <laughs> but um, I, I also look at like the, you know, let me up. I had enough was gold, went gold. Southern accents went platinum long after dark was gold. Hard promises with platinum down the torpedoes is three times platinum. So I'm working, I'm working backwards here. Yeah. And it just seemed to me that after let me up, I had enough. There was a danger and a lot of lesser artists would have just turned into a, a nostalgic act or mm-hmm. a nostalgia act. And just tour those 17 greatest hits that he had prior to Full Moon Fever. Never write another great album. Uh, never have the, never reach the success that they reached with uh, Dan the Torpedoes. Yeah. Um, and a lot of bands did like that happened to a lot of bands. And instead, uh, re- a revitalized Tom went to do a solo album and just destroyed that storyline like that was never once full moon fever came out that was over yeah. like that was never a concern that he was going to fade into obscurity um and then obviously into the great wide open uh mary jane's last dance i mean he's writing these in his 40s yeah. uh wildflowers in his 40s 
when most bands are or most artists are just scrambling trying to recapture the magic so yeah. really like this this point in time full moon fever into the great wide open just that pivot point where he could have gone into oblivion but turned into arguably the greatest songwriter in american history agreed and I mean, what we should do is we'll we'll put this out to the listeners and we'll we'll ask people's opinions because i know i've got we've got a few listeners who think deeply about these things as, as do we now and I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll all agree with you but that's okay <laughs> maybe what i have to do is sit down and actually because you know when you when you're trying to explain it out loud i'm i'm a i like writing with that kind of stuff because then i can actually sit back and think okay is that actually cohesive what i'm thinking and sometimes when i write i think oh yeah no i'm wrong <laughs> so you know well i think i mean i think what you're saying is true i don't think that the lyrics taking a step forward necessarily indicates a new chapter when the music is there as the history you know as our right. other evidence and then I do think also the lyrics on Full Moon Fever are significantly better than Let Me Up, I've Had Enough. Um, and certainly both Full Moon Fever and Into the Great White Open are much more cohesive albums than Southern Accents. Yeah. So um, I just think that maybe Into the Great White Open was more refined in terms of its album scope. Right. Um, and then definitely more depth with the, with with the lyrics, but I don't think you know. I just disagree with your assertion. But the the good thing about this is, <laughs> is that you are a contrarian thinker, but you don't get upset or freak out when you're when there's pushback. It's, life's too short. Yeah, when I'm 50 years old, I haven't got time to be getting upset with people who I like. Like, what's what's the point of that? I've probably well, got, we're having a night, probably we're 30 at, years we're, max left, right? So, you know, you're in Canada, I'm in California. We're talking about Tom Petty. We both love the music and uh yeah. we get to do this uh every few months and uh, uh next up is a greatest hits episode absolutely fairly shortly because we've only got i mean and what we're going to do i think or john is we're going to throw peace in la into that cycle um because it was released i think 92 okay. right so it's it's kind of in that same it's in that same cycle it's between integrate wide open and wildflowers and i did want to cover it and i didn't really want to do a standalone so yeah we'll do a, we'll do a little a brief bonus season on uh Man, Mary Jane's Last Dance on a Greatest Hits album was a new song. It's insane. Are you going to do something in the air as well? Yeah. Okay. It was recorded. It's on an album because we did, you know, feel yeah. a whole lot better. He didn't write feel yeah. a whole lot better, but we we did that one. So I think we I think we sort of have to. So I think we we need to for the Greatest Hits come back with our own, you know, how if the producer of the day. How would we absolutely change it? And there are some definite discussions there. He is just there's like you know there's the there may be fifteen or thirteen or fifteen that have to be on. And then there's like five to eight where you're like, ooh, like you could really, depending on what part of his discography you want to feature, you could really make the case for eight more songs. Yeah. Which is fine if in the age of playlists, but I think back to what was it, 93, and like here's a snapshot. Yeah, and, I, and then I think, something in the air is taking up. Like you could just have released Mary Jane's Last Dance. Yeah, but something in the air is taking up a spot on yeah. Tom Petty's first greatest hits. Absolutely, so and it's and it's it. knocking off Jamming Me, and it's knocking off Insider, and it's knocking off you know songs that arguably should be on there. So I think what we're gonna have to do, and we'll we'll do this offline so we don't bore people. We'll have to come up with some criteria here, and I think yeah. the physical media format is one of them because we're talking about songs, and I like doing that anyway because it forces you to be a little bit more. Um, critical and sort of a bit more cutthroat but so we'll either we'll have to do cd or double album 
And if we go double vinyl and CD, then you got to think about the sequencing might have to be different because then you've got constraints on time on double vinyl, right? So we'll 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 figure all that out. Double vinyl, right. just as a, as a sign, it will give you more, right? You've got more time. You'll be able to get more songs on double vinyl than you would on a CD. Just you, it just was such a. I guess is the word ubiquitous CD in college, like every yeah. party or every, I heard it at every party I went to, they just put on like, that was one of those, well, we'll get into it, but that was one <laughs> of those as a preview. That's one of those greatest hits, maybe one of the greatest hits of all time. Certainly at that point in his career, yeah. you just put it on. There is not a bad song on there. Yeah. So there's just, it's just banger after banger. For me, it's it's this the same as Queen's Greatest Hits, and it's the same as the Rolling Stones '67 to '74, whatever that one is. It's just yeah, there's like there's no foul in this. The hell are we gonna apart? You know, and again, we're gonna talk about something there, and we'll get to it. But yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. I'm, and that's one I've been looking forward to for a long time because I know that one's gonna be because uh, we talk about sequencing. Do you sequence them chronolog chronologically, like they do in Greatest Hits, or do you try to sequence all the thematic, or do you mix up the tempo and bring things up and slow them down. It's going to be, this going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I'll, I'll hold my thoughts on that for that, for that episode. <laughs> okay. I'll wrap things up here because I don't think we have anything else to cover. I think we got off the, my controversial thing. So we did the singles here. Just, yeah. So where, where does this album, just to wrap this up, where does into the great white open fit right now for you rankings wise in his discography? Oh, on the spot, I think I'm still going to always, pretty much always put Wildflowers 1. I'm probably always going to put, probably always going to put Hard Promises at 2, just because I love that album so much. Then it's going to be a toss-up between Torpedoes and Full Moon Fever and possibly Mojo, because I love that album as well. You know what, I'll, 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 I'll say I'll, I'll number four. I'll put it in four spot. What I'm listening to right now and what I enjoy right now, it's four nudging into three. Just because I've really enjoyed this album so much from listening from doing this this season. Um it's an album, like you said, there's there's not even close to a skipper on it for me. When I throw yeah. on the vinyl, when I'm listening to vinyl on weekends, it's every single song I love. I've got such an appreciation for the band as always and and Tom's lot songwriting. So I'd let's go four. Let's say four for me right now as, as as of today and i and i think um i'm just looking at the list of albums here and i like damn the torpedoes but i don't think it's as cohesive of an album as this no no, no, I, no i would be much more likely to put on great wide open than that and yeah. certainly i you know i like Harry promises but not to the extent that you do so i think i would put it third after right wildflowers which is now my first because i'm a 50 year old man <laughs> uh i think it's first again now or it is now uh full moon fever at two and then into the great wide open i, I believe at three at this point yeah. but that's that raises an interesting point too though right because are you wanting to listen to a collection of great songs or are you want to listen to a great album because if i'm wanting to listen to a great a really cohesive album i don't think the ever topped you know mojo and wildflowers i mean wildflowers mojo's just one of the best albums ever recorded in terms of the way it was done how cohesive that album is in terms of sonics in terms of the the feel of it it all sounds like it fits together um if you want to talk about concepts well the last dj is superb because it tells this story of like it's got this theme it's tough man it's really tough ranking things with with petty because he's so good he's so consistent that's a good problem to have absolutely 
That's like when you're, you know, when you're when you're Jurgen Klopp and your your subs are better than Man United starters. It's a, it's a good problem to have for a game, right? <laughs> I'm glad you admitted that. That's good. <laughs> hey, I love my I love my my team. I just they're deeply deeply flawed, flawed and broken at the moment. So, <laughs> as much as it pains me to admit it, yours bloody well isn't, and I don't well, like it. Just, I don't like it, John. They, they just lost three one to Arsenal. Um, yeah. So you're gonna get a few losses. Here I'm a little there. I'm a little worried. A little worried. Yeah, Got to get Salah back. I mean, City have got Haaland and De Bruyne back. That's never good for anyone. So, right. you know. Okay, well, we'll leave it there. And we'll, because uh, we're going to be getting together again, as you said, really, really soon to talk about the, the three songs in the gap between the, until up until Wildflowers. Um, but until we meet again next week, uh, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy. And I'll be back with you next week to talk about Tom Petty. I'm not exactly sure what the next episode is going to be yet. So it'll be a nice surprise for me and you. Bye-bye.